Let us now turn to the scripture reading, Amos 2, verse 4, 4 through 16. Amos 2, 4 through 16. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, <coughs> I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers Allah followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their uh, God. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of you, your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, do not prophesy. Behold, I'm weighed down by you. As a, cart is, as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape. Nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. May the Lord's name be blessed through this passage of Scripture. The title of the sermon today is Amos' Ironical Burden, Israel. We know that Amos, his very name means burden, and there are, there are allusions throughout this text to uh, the burden that he felt and the burden that God had laid upon him or given him. And so we see here him, him explaining this. Now, we touched on this passage last week. We read the whole first chapter, and we compared the pagan nations of the world with Israel and Judah. And we saw that God was full of wrath. Uh, we saw how it was very understandable and um, Transparent, why he might be under, why he might be full of wrath towards those who paid him no attention, the, the pagan nations of the world. Today's world, we refuse to or uh, deflect from dividing the world according to paganism or true religion. Uh, we we think that there are things that are more fundamental and more deep and important than faith or Christ versus Antichrist. But here. It was very, very plain. And so it's understandable why God was wroth with 
the pagan nations of the world. But then we saw last week how he was he also had three complaints and four against both Judah and Israel, these two parts of his nation as they would come to be uh, after the um, after the death of Solomon and the the division of the land based upon their tribal instincts and more regional instincts and that sort of thing. And so we saw where God was upset with uh, with Israel and and uh, Judah. But we didn't really get into it that deeply. I mean, I referred to the, the parts of these things, but I, it would do us well to look at them today because God, God God's wrath in this case is ironic because it falls upon the church. It falls upon those people who were his only begotten in the ancient world. Um, when we when we come to chapter 3, he'll enlarge upon this. He'll say, he'll talk about Israel, and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll say that he's come against the whole family which I brought it from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So this fits in or dovetails with this way of looking at the world and world history of which I have given you in the past, which I think is biblical, wherein we see that God, through Israel, has established a beachhead in the world to take back the whole world. And yet, in this case, that part of the world that he had sanctified the most, that part of the world with which he was most intimate, namely Israel and Judah, and we can see parallels today with the Church of Christ, and, and often it's laxity and lack of concern and casual sense toward the living God. Here in America, we, we rejoice to hear anybody that has any faith at all. And yet, generally across the land, the faith that we see is not a faith which is really respectful of the greatness of God, the magnificence of God, and the power of God. So that even the church, we feel, has let God down in so many ways. And then we look at ourselves, and we see that even though we know that he has called us, we know he's redeemed us, he saved us from sin, yet we see in ourselves much of the laxity that we see out there in the world. And so we flagellate ourselves, and I don't know about you, but I, I take the, the whip of uh, the condemnation of the word of God and whip my back, you know, and, and drive my, try to drive myself to a greater um, obedience and a greater enthusiasm after the kingdom of God and the things of the Lord. So it's ironic here that this that this condemnation would come and come down upon God's people. There's this flavor today, or this sense of things, that if we're in the church anywhere, if we are, if we're coming out for one or two hours on the Lord's day, that God is so blessed by that. God is so blessed by our presence, even as we restrain ourselves from a whole-hearted love of God throughout the day. And so ancient Israel had much of the same spirit coursing through its veins, and that's what God condemns here. Now, um, in the bulletin, I've got the outline here of the sermon as abuse, human abuse of God's law, abuse of God's people, abuse of God's providence and fear, and then John the Baptist's repentance, uh, which is really necessary. And if we think of John the Baptist and his ministry, his mission preceding the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not outlandish to think 
that we ought to tie these earlier prophecies, like the prophecy of Isaiah or the prophecy of Amos here or the prophecy of Hosea, Jeremiah. It's not outlandish to, to see all of these prophets leading up to John the Baptist and then indeed into our Lord Jesus Christ as he condemns the, the religious leaders of the land. Oh, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. It's, it's, it's a good thing to see the continuity between these condemnations so that John the Baptist is not doing something brand new. He's just a future chapter of what Amos is doing here. And so um, we see that this begins in verse 4 with uh, uh, the Lord's condemnation of the northern tribes, or I mean the southern tribe of Judah first. And... Uh, he tells them why he's upset with them. He says, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord. Now, I would say that the evangelical church today would find this a surprise. Uh, they, they would, I think the evangelical church, if they would find fault with, um, with themselves today, they might have a whole list of other things that would come before citing the law of God. We tend to denigrate the law of God today. We tend to think that the law of God is no more than since we've learned about the gospel, since the coming of Christ, that the law of God is null and void. It really isn't relevant anymore. And yet here, in Amos' condemnation of his people, the very first, and the, the cardinal, if you will, the cardinal infraction that he brings against his people is that they... Uh, that they have despised the law of the Lord. I would say that this teaches us more about ourselves than about the errors of Amos or the the errors, the, the, the misconsideration that here the Old, Old, Old Testament prophet has. I think that we would do well to consider this. Most of us, when we think of law, <clears throat> we think of it as uh, coming from authority. It's a, it's a oppressive kind of a thing. It's a, somebody telling us what we should do. And uh, it's far more easy and delightful to think of Christ who just comes and loves us as we are, which he does, but there's more to it than that. He comes to, uh, to uh, convert our hearts and our souls so that we would become disciples of his, just like the 12 disciples. And what are we discipled in or by except the law of God? Does not the law of God tell us these things? We think of law as oppressive, as something outside of us, as something exterior, something that's not as sublime as love. But indeed, the law of God is God's love language unto us, telling us what root uh, about his character and describing for us how that we might be holy and good and a delight to him. Uh, <clears throat> we think of the law so coldly as only imposed authority. No, God's law, God's law is letter to us detailing his divine heart. Uh, love him above all, first commandment. Worship him, commandments two and three. Uh, love his presence, or love, commandments two, three, and four. Love his presence with our generations, commandment five. Honor thy father and thy mother of faith. 
his, his, his love of life, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do all you can to esteem life and to protect it. Uh, that we should love fidelity, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. That we should love his providence and hate all lies, commandments eight and nine. That we would love his sufficiency and his providence that's unto us. Uh, the final, the last, the tenth commandment. So we tend to think of the, of the law as something that is extraneous, something that is uh, completely antagonistic to the spirit of God and love. And so we see our New Testament worship as being spiritual and being loving. And uh, we've, we've passed beyond the idea of law. Well, if the law describes the love of God, if it describes his very character, if it describes sanctification, if it describes holiness, then should it not be esteemed by us? Should it not have been esteemed by the Old Testament peoples at this time? Should they not have seen? Not only that, but people forget that the sacrificial system, the system which embodied and pointed to the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, we forget that that was part of God's law too. It was God's law that they, that they had these sacrifices every day. It was God's law that they had the Sabbath and would worship him and would come and fellowship with him. All of that was not uh, uh, merely... Um, uh, possible for men or something over which they could meditate and say well today I feel like worshiping God today I think I do need that sacrifice no God's law ordered that the sacrifice was done day and night every day of the year throughout the history of Israel and so even the gospel in the Old Testament was by law and that's why in the New Testament when Jesus argues with us and ex exhorts us to faith. It's almost in the imperative sense, the, the verbal sense, the imperative. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God does not call the world to come unto me if you feel like it. Come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he, he commands people to so the, the gospel Though it, it, is, it has to do with our willpower and it has to do with our volunteerism, yet it, it is also commanded. It's not optional. We need every word that God gives us. It has this dimension to it. That's why John Knox, famous for Scottish reformer, John Knox talked about the whole Bible being the law of God. And he talked right. He told, he talked right. He framed this thing right. The law of God. And so he, he talked about preaching the law. And when he preached the law, he preached gospel, gospel and also sanctification. Both. In a, in a most united fashion in terms of the whole of the scriptures. And so this was the problem that Israel had here, you see. When it says in verse 4, uh, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord. They have not kept his commandments. Well, what would God say today to the evangelical church that scoffs at these declarations, these sovereign declarations that God has made? What would he say to them? What would he say to us? We must be awoken to the truth of the word of God that every word that God speaks to us is clothed with his divine authority and majesty. 
our actions are circumscribed by anything that God has said. So our first concern ought to be regarding our life and regarding, regarding the questions of our lives. Our first question ought to be, what hath God said? What hath God said? And if we can determine what God has said, then we happily will go along with it because we know that is the will of God. And God is perfect and God is good and God is love. God is beautiful. So that every command of his, every declaration, that's why when people today just scoff at the idea of theonomy, I wonder if they understand anything about the scriptures. Even if these things have been replaced in some way, shape, or form, or fashion, they still came from the mouth of God, and they still, there's nothing to be scoffed at in what he has said. Uh, he may have a Leverite law that uh, is no longer applicable uh, because of the, the change in the covenant economies. But yet there, was, uh, uh, there were lovely thoughts and lovely messages uh, taught in such laws like that, even those that have passed away with the nation state of Israel. And so we ought to come to God's uh, word differently than these Israelites and these Judahites that God condemns here. We have to come with a, a deep respect and a love and an affection and a humility. Uh, Job says, uh, these, these are the ones that, uh, or Isaiah said, these are the ones whom I love. The, the one with a humble heart who trembles at my word. The problem with America today the root of all of our chaos is that we have not a generation of men and women and children who tremble at the word of God. We think the word of God is nothing, that it's marginal, that it's optional. And that was the problem of Israel. So uh, Amos comes and he attacks them right at that point, right away. Because they have despised the law of the Lord. Oh, I would love to preach this sermon before our synod, before our church, because there's far too much kind of incipient dispensationalism, this, this, uh, this, 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 this despising of the very word of God. We, we say it, we'll examine our candidates, and we'll, talk, we'll talk about how they must recognize the word of God as infallible and these kinds of things. And yet at the same time, uh, we will de be dismissive of part of God's word uh, because we think that it is so eclipsed by the gospel, not seeing that the, the, the gospel is rooted on the law of God. If you don't have any understanding of righteousness, then you have no understanding of the cross of Christ. Because Christ came because we were unrighteous, and he came to do righteousness. His life was full of righteousness. He obeyed every command of the Old Testament, and he satisfied righteousness so that he might give us that righteousness afterwards in this double swap of taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. And if, and, and if, we, if we're dismissive of righteousness, dismissive of law, then why did Jesus need to die on the cross at all? He died for law. He died to satisfy the law, the Bible says. And so we, we live in a generation of, um, of just uh, uh, confusion and, 
and uh, misalignment of our theology. So the second thing here is, um, in terms of our outline, is abuse of God's people, which he takes up. He mainly takes up the idea of law with Judah, but he mainly takes up the idea of abuse of God's people when he talks about Israel, the northern ten tribes. And of course, the two things apply to each other. They follow after each other, like, like B follows A in the alphabet. If we do not have a respect for God in what he has said, then why should we respect each other in what we are? Because we are merely creations of God. We are, we're created in the image of God. So if we, if we are on, uh, abashed and, and before the image of the Lord, the living God, the divine God, if we're unabashed before him, if we're unbroken before him, why should we be unbroken or humble before each other who are merely his created image? You see the two go together. And so uh, wherever you find bad religion, wherever you find a failure to worship the true God, you will find civil strife. You'll find a breakdown in the civil order, the social order. So we see that here with Israel. Thus says the Lord, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver, uh, the poor for a pair of sandals. In other words, money was the prime goal, the prime good. Just this past week, there was a famous quote. They had um, uh, uh, they, the billionaire that just bought... Uh, What's his name? Elon Musk. They had Elon on. He's not, he's not a confessing Christian. But they, they had him on because he was being interviewed, and, and they, the interviewer said, well, what if, you, what if you're going to, what if you're, you know, these decisions that you're making about Tic Tac, Tic Tac, uh, no, uh, what, what is it? Twitter. Twitter. Uh, we shouldn't name these things with the same consonants, Twitter and Tic Tac. So, they had him on there asking him questions about how he's running Twitter. And they asked him, well, what, you know, what if the way you're doing things, the decisions you're making, are going to lose you money? And he basically said, damn the money. Now, you know, and, and that was seized upon. I've, I've heard that, that a lot of people have caught up that interview because it was so refreshing that somebody had a value above filthy lucre, as it is spoken of here. Money is wonderful if you do it in righteousness, but when you do it, uh, when you when you make that your number one goal, and then sell and buy the Lord by because of money, it's a bad thing. And so Israel was doing that because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Uh, it says uh, they they lie uh, they lie down verse eight. They lie down on every altar on clothes taken and pledged. Now the Proverbs say that if the Israelites were not to take uh, a pledge or a, um, uh, a piece of clothing from the poor in order to basically a fine. If they, if they went to court and they were, they were um, uh, worthy of paying some fine, if they were so poor that they didn't have the money, they were not supposed to take the cloak of the poor in order to, as a, as a substitute for that fine. And so uh, this, this sin was done in many ways with the poor by taking the, their, their essential things that they needed for life 
uh, in a greedy way by the law. And then on the other hand, it was it was done by the rich sometimes, where they were obligated to do something, and so they would give some some uh, piece of property or some something of some a little value, maybe a fancy dress or a fancy garment, a fancy robe, they would give that in, in lieu of really repenting, really giving what, paying them what they should. And so but this sin tended to work both ways, with the poor and with the rich. It, it abscond, the rich absconded with really doing what they should by making these displays of generosity. And then, then they would turn, uh, like the parable of Jesus that Jesus told, where uh, the, they, 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 they would steal from the poor man. They would take the, the one sheep that he had, one lamb that he had, rather than do what they, when, when they had been forgiven, they would do the opposite. And so we see that this was going on in Israel. But we see all of this just flows from this idea of not really loving the Lord, not really having a respect for God, and just finagling and trying to figure out ways that you could cheat the Lord, get along with your life without him making too much of a an impact upon your life, you know, like like figuring the tithe on the, on the, in, the in a crooked way, you know, and just um, uh, trying to deal with God as if He didn't know. And we know that that's what happened with uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. They finagled. They they wanted to make the pretense before their New Testament church of giving all that they had to the Lord, where in reality they had whole whole bunch hidden in the background. And, uh, and God will not accept this, and God was angry with us. So the abuse of God's law and the abuse of God's people, and then the abuse of fear and the greatness of God. God says in verse 9, he calls their attention to the fact, he, he says, here you are, you're living these lives where you're toying with me, you're playing games with me, but you don't, you don't realize where I've been. You don't, you don't even understand your own past. He says, Do you, was, was it yet, was it, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them. That is, before the Israelites. The Amorites are those people who lived in Israel before Israel came in after the 40 years in the wilderness. And so <clears throat> Amos is saying, do you not realize that I destroyed the Amorites before you? I, I kicked them out. I, I exercised my, my, my rights as landlord of the land of Israel, and I got them kicked out. Why do you think I kicked them out? You know, do you not understand? Do you not understand that I didn't just give you the land because you really merited it because you were a better people? Do you not understand that I gave them to you out of my own righteousness, not your righteousness, but mine, and that the Amorites had been wicked before you, and that that's why I kicked them out. That's why I took away their rental agreement. Um, he says, regarding the Amorites, I destroyed, making the, the figure of a tree to them, to the Israelites. He says, I destroyed the fruit above and the roots beneath. In other words, he, he, he condemned the whole tree of the Amorite nation. Also, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, who led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. Israel just wasn't thinking clearly about these things. They were taking God for granted. They were playing games with him. He said in verse 11, I've raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Now, I remember the Nazarites were, 
it was a, 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 a group within the Israelites who would dedicate themselves in a special way to go without the things of this world that they might promote the kingdom of God. And one of the things they were to go without is the joys of wine. And there was a good thing that God had given the people, the nation, but uh, he, he wanted them to, to be even more sober than the typical Israelites in the way they went about things. And so the, the, the Nazarites were supposed to be kind of the, the Marine Corps of the Israelites. They were supposed to be the ones that were super dedicated to the Lord. But here the people were, they were tempting the Nazarites. Oh, I know you took that vow, but look, this is our birthday. Or this is national day of this or that. And, you know, can't you, can't, let us all drink wine and be glad. And uh, he said, they said to the prophets, at the end of verse 12, do not prophesy. So these were great gifts that God gave to Israel, but the people were misusing them and abusing, abused by them. And so in verse 13, you get back to the, the idea of the name of Amos. God says to Amos, or through Amos, behold, I'm weighed down by you. In other words, Israel had become a burden to him. They were weighing him down. They were causing him pain, if we can speak in that way, because of their unrighteousness. As a cart is full of sheaves, or hay, we might say today, is weighed down, uh, so I am weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. You may, be, you may be fast, you may be the fastest runner in all of Israel, but you will not escape the wrath, my wrath, when it comes. And the strong shall not escape by the strength of their power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord because uh, of his greatness and his goodness and the purity of his heart. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> A man that I've come to know somewhat in the last few years is a teacher at Arizona State University, full professor there. I've prayed with him through his elevation to full professorship. And now Arizona State seems hell-bent, along with every other, practically every other educational institution in America, with going woke and celebrating all of these things that are not worth celebrating. And um, so Owen had written me something this past week, and I, I responded with this. I said, it, it's exciting to live by faith. I, I, I could say Owen. Also scary. This adds even more significance to living ethically for Christ. If that, if in that, if we can be aware of our gospel purity of heart, we shall see God, according to the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God during our kingdom walk. So I was writing this to Owen because I'm concerned about him and because he's taking many public stands very boldly against the university, challenging them to think about what they're doing. He's done it wisely as well as forthrightly. I said, our own hearts deceive us so thoroughly in this that motivates and that, that, motives, that motives and the purity of our love are ever before us. When I've been in such situations, I've been so aware that Christ could crush me at any moment. I'm thinking it all in this. Yet simultaneously, since I knew that his thread of grace sustained me, 
I've had a kind of super sensitivity of his abundant love. He always sustains us in such circumstances, yet often his sustenance is through momentary suffering. I was always ready to endure this danger myself, or at least as ready as I could be as a sinner saint in this world. But to have a family and know that my suffering was theirs too was almost too much for me. This is why Paul said it was often easier to be untouched and single. Yet I've seen in my own experience both the ironic richness of his glory in these things and even my fleshly blessings through them. I'm sure one of the reasons my two surviving sons have kept faith to the degree that they have is God's provident grace. Such things aren't produced by this world. It produces the malignancy of a George Soros in his kingdom. But God loves to see faith that is willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. It is so rare here. It knits my heart to yours. Oh. So as I conversed with him, I, I, I do, I fear for him. I fear for anyone in this world that attempts to live for Christ. But God, God is loving. I, I don't know, it was a weekend or a couple of days here to, to be thinking about deeper things. And uh, I found out about the Packers kids, Isaac and uh, Danielle, now little Owen. Uh, I found out about them this weekend. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I, uh, Phil Packers always sends me his bulletin. Uh, about Saturday, I think, and um, sometimes I will look at it. And so this time, I, I because I knew of the of Owen and the problems there, I just wondered what he would say in his bulletin. And of course, he called for prayer by that. But he had the most interesting title for his sermon, and I was struck. I was struck by it. And it was tied to uh, Ecclesiastes six seven, um, <clears throat> and. Um, uh, and uh, so I turned to uh, Ecclesiastes 6-7 and now there's something else you don't know about me this week and that is that um, um, for medical reasons I've gone on a water fast I started Tuesday night as soon as I uh, and it's not it's not anything I'm not going to die tomorrow or something but I, I, I'm threatened with something and so I just know that uh, I've read Many doctors will push this idea as a something that a common person can do. So I, I fasted all week, and uh, and different days I really gets painful. And, and uh, you know, I'll have mornings I'll feel great, and then I've lost weight and this sort of thing. And then yeah, you know, I can see victories. And then later on in the day, though, I can obsess about food. <laughs> Let me eat anything. Let me chew on a tree. You know, it just uh, that that's the sort of feeling that you get. And so um, I had a hard day yesterday afternoon, and I'm thinking, oh, you, you, you need to eat because you need energy for your sermon. Uh, you know, <laughs> you get these thoughts that go through your mind. But I, I stayed away. I just thought, no, I really, want to, I really want to see what the Lord will do with this and uh, with my physical issues here. And so when Pachris wrote, I, you know, I had this, he had this odd sermon title, and um, he pointed to Ecclesiastes 6, 7. And so I turned to it. And, and, and this, is the, this is verse 7, 6, 7. All the labor of man, every, all the labor of man is for, is for his mouth. 
and yet the appetite is not satisfied. <laughs> and I just uh, I had to laugh about it because it's like it's like a, a spiritual example of lucky dipping. You know that thing where you, they, they say just open the Bible, point to any verse, and it's it's God's word for you today. Well, I wasn't lucky. I was trying to find a, a, a scripture, but it, it, when you fasted all week and you found you found yourself in great pain sometimes and discomfort over it, and then you you come to a scripture and the, that was the first verse of this portion upon which Phil is preaching about today. All the labor of man is for his mouth. And yet his appetite is not satisfied. And of course, this applies not only to food. You know, we we eat things, and as soon as we eat some fabulous meal that you might eat, as soon as you eat it, you think, "Well, I'm still hungry." Or either you, you either you, you've overeaten or you've undereaten, and you think of something else you'd like, and so you're never really satisfied. And you can apply this you can apply this to food and to or to to sex and marriage or anything, sex outside of marriage, you can, you can apply it to anything. As fleshly creatures, we are too prone to measure worth or value by our appetites. But as, as uh, Solomon said, all the labor of man is for his mouth. I just, I love the way I, it was so forcefully put by, uh, by Solomon, uh, so adeptly put, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. And so I just couldn't help myself. I wrote a note to Phil this morning, and I said, by way of encouraging you both with yourself and with me, Owen, and Daniel's, Daniel's preeclampsia, let me share this. After a week's secret water fast, I read your bulletin and stuff this morning. It was intrigued with your sermon title and Ecclesi the Ecclesiastes text. So I turned to Ecclesiastes 7, 6, 7 and read, All the labor of man is for his mouth, yet the appetite is not filled. How is it that for my, how, how, how is that for my hungry soul? What does it say about God's providence? Last evening I was obsessed with thoughts of food after a week without it. I felt tortured to munch on something, anything. How could I preach today without food? I hated water. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 6-7 is my answer from God this morning through you. Be encouraged, brother. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15-58. I knew that Phil was, was in the, in the, under duress over his grandson here. Uh, he's a very sweet, sensitive man, Phil is. So I said to Phil, I said, I believe if we seek his face that God will bring Danielle and Owen through this. It shall be one more jewel in his testimony. We shall speak of him as conceived in supernatural glory. If we pray with fear and trembling, I believe God will answer our prayers with tears of joy. This, this is, these are the sentiments of spirituality where we love God and we love each other and we our, our lives are knit together. We cannot see one person suffer without having sympathy for them. But this is not life as men, as, as one of mankind. This is life as regenerate people, life whom the, the gospel and the spirit have touched. And this is the life of which we are too short of in this modern world today. Which the political parties know almost nothing. I see Republicans savaging each other falsely almost as badly as they do to the other party. So we today in Israel in the past, we all need to hear John the Baptist 
and his calls for repentance, his calls to measure ourselves not by our lives or by the lives of others, but to measure our lives by the law of God, by what God has said in his word. And having measured ourselves, embracing Jesus in all of his power to save us from our sin. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might do well with this book of Amos and that we might we might see through those words that we might just discount like law and go on. We pray that we might see the see the death that Amos spoke, that we might have a sense of their true warrant. Bless us, O oh God. We saw how Israel failed, and yet they 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 issued forth with the beloved Son, even Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not disdain this Messiah now in this later day. We have so many advantages that Israel did not in insight. We have all of their failures before our eyes. We pray that the church might be raised up, O oh God, in glory. We pray that the church might not fall and fail like Israel and Judah. We pray that we might be better. We pray that thy, thy grace might be better with us and that it might perfect us even unto the uttermost so that we might fulfill thy role as thou hast defined it for us to bring this whole world under the constraints of Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray in his name. Amen.